and listeners. Welcome to the second of three interview-only episodes of the Thos Hermes podcast, coming to you on April 21st, 2019. In fact, this is episode 8 of our season 2. My name is Rudolf and I am your host. Interview-only this means that this is an episode in which you will hear the usual long interview with our guest, but there is no other items such as listener feedback, news, book reviews or music other than the intro and outro music. Therefore, the interview will also be all in one piece, no music break in the middle today. And today's interview is a lengthy one, lasting 80 minutes and I'm sure you will enjoy. I want to remind you that since our last week's episode, we also present those shows on YouTube, with a different intro and outro music to distinguish them. It would be nice to hear from you if you like us to make those shows also available on YouTube. They are, of course, sound only with a simple background picture. If you are a regular YouTube podcast listener, this might be of interest for you. Some of you have asked if we will also make live shows on YouTube, or at least have video for those YouTube shows as well. I'm not sure yet, to be honest. All will depend on your requests and reactions. I am happy to go that extra mile to satisfy our audience, but in order to find out, I depend on your reactions. So please, let me know your thoughts on that. Otherwise, you can, as usual, listen to this episode on all major podcast outlets. If you want to give us feedback, please go to our website www.thoshermes.com That is T-H-O-T-H-E rmes.com and leave a voice message or a written one through the contact form. You can also send an email via info at thoughtshermes.com and of course there is always Facebook or Twitter where we can also be found. If you want to subscribe to our free newsletter on the website, we are happy if you do that. Our interview guest today is someone we have already had on Season 2 in our Episode 3. 
If I tell you that this dates over a year back, you realize how slow I have been in producing new shows over the last 15 months. But as you see now, this show only comes a week after the last one, so I'm trying to catch up a bit. British author and extremely nice and knowledgeable personality Tobias Churgin is here with us again. But the subject of our talk is rather different from last year. Back then, we were talking about Alistair Crowley in America and Tobias' excellent book on that subject. And today, the book, which is in the center of our attention, is called The Spiritual Meaning of the Sixties. This is a wide field, and as Tobias is, like me, by the way, a native of 1960, there is a lot of very personal memories and thoughts about that period, which found its way into this book and into our conversation. And the talk was very much extended beyond the book itself. It ended up being a real nice chat on all kinds of subjects that originated in the 1960s, also general thoughts on spirituality, and it shows what a brilliant man and writer Tobias is. Of course, you will, as always, find the relevant details and links in the show notes to this episode on the Thoth Hermes website. And now, let us say hello to our guest, Tobias Churchin. Here comes the interview. I'm very happy to welcome back on the Thoth Hermes uh, podcast, Tobias Churton, who has been with us earlier in 2018 on the podcast, and it was a great show. People loved it, and I'm very happy to have you back, Tobias. Welcome. Thank you very much, Rudolf. And it's not only that it's just also nice to talk to you, uh, but also the reason why we're meeting here now is a book, well, another book, I must say, that you have, that you have written and that has come out a few weeks ago, basically, which is called The Spiritual Meaning of the 60s. And I also would like to add the subtitle because I think it is extremely important to add it. The magic, myth and music of the decades that changed the world. That's a big title, isn't it? <laughs> um, big so book. a big book. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. And a great book, I must say. A big book because it's 650 something pages. And it's a great book because it has all kinds of interesting stuff in it. Well, where should we start? Well, the first question, Tobias, I would like to ask you, why did you write this book? What was the impulse? What gave you the idea and the impulse to write this book? Well, there were several impulses. The first one was my daughter, Merave, started playing uh, uh, 60s records, The Birds, uh, Beatles, started collecting vinyl a few years ago uh, when she was in her mid-teens. And uh, I hadn't uh, made her do this. And if I had tried to, I'm sure she wouldn't have uh, followed me anyway. <laughs> and I, we just got talking about it. And it was absolutely clear to me that she she was getting something far different off this music. Uh, you know, I say it was things like the Birds, Rolling Stones, the Who, uh, Jim Morrison, that sort of stuff. She's getting something more of it than something her generation's music 
was not doing for. And I'd ask her about it. I said, what, what is it? She says, well, I wish I'd been born then. I should have been born then. And then she'd talk about it. And I realized that she had a very rosy picture of the 60s in her mind. And she pretty well absorbed uh, the, cult, the, the sort of internet culture. The 60s means miniskirts, lots of colors, Carnaby Street, everyone, peace and love. And there was you know, almost a utopian idea of the, the period. <laughs> And, right. I'd, and I'd say things like, well, you know, actually what you're clicking into is something that was, that's really in maybe the best of it in some ways, which is great that that's coming through into the, into the consciousness of another, uh, several generations later. Uh, but I said the whole picture actually at the time was very different. And as, as I thought about that, you know, I'd often th- wanted to read a book about the 60s that gave me the sense that I had when I was alive in it. Uh, and that wasn't some sort of socialistic analysis um, of politics and the usual subjects, uh, but actually had a sort of a spiritual meaning to it, because I think the, the period for me was spiritually electric. And I discussed this with the, the publisher, and he very unusually rang me back and telling me that he'd been waiting for years for somebody to come up with the idea of being <laughs> specifically as I called it, the spiritual meaning of the 60s, because it's what people was, had been saying. I remember working on programs at the BBC, and they'd be talk, always talking about the spiritual meaning of the 60s, but the, what, it, what this spiritual meaning was, nobody had answered. And um, so I thought, well, we better find, as part of my course of my whole uh, writing life, uh, everything I want to express and understand, I wanted to answer this question, what was the spiritual meaning of the 60s, and right. explore it. And so, of course, you start, and uh, it, it just gets bigger and bigger. And, and the book starts uh, with a couple of optional chapters on the <laughs> what do we mean by spiritual meaning, what does spiritual meaning mean. I, I, right. So I address people for whom life perhaps has no spiritual meaning, and words like spiritual meaning are meaningless. So I sort of address the atheist, behaviorist, uh, skeptic in the first instance uh, by, by uh, uh, systematic philosophical means and then get on with telling what the spiritual meaning of the 60s is, um, th- going through every aspect of it. I, I didn't want to just talk about music, although, of course, you can't get away from this and you, you don't want to. You want to explore it. I also address theology, cinema, politics, the civil rights movement, all that, that sort of thing, but also thematic things like... Um, I called the great plastic fantastic space race. Um, mm-hmm. That whole the zeitgeist of the sixties, I remember as a child particularly, was this whole jet jet setting, forward thrusting, rocket propelled, shiny. You know, it's all going up. Yeah. It's going up, and it's going fast. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and you have to you're into this stuff. Of how do you define the decade and all that? But so those are those are things that that were that were motivating me and. Also, I wanted, I wanted to write an autobi- a book that had more autobiographical content. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now you gave me a lot of questions to add to that. We must just be careful that we don't give away the whole book, of course. But um, I won't tell you what happens so, at the end. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's not. <laughs> that's not. But um, first, to make that clear, uh, if you agree to, because we are about the same age, you and I, I, I would think I was born in 1960. Uh, and I think it's just, we are very close in, in age, aren't we? We are, yes. It's true. Yes. So, 
So we we must have had a bit the same experience, even though yours in the UK was probably a bit more exciting than mine here in Austria. Almost um, certainly, yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. And but our daughters are also about the same age. My daughter is now 22, and um, so I didn't make the same experience, to be honest. But with her, with her reaction to the music, but still, um, I kind of very well understand what you mean. Um, so maybe we take it. We take it from there. Uh, she's um, actually reading the book now. I couldn't believe it. I mean, she never reads my things, and okay. uh, she's actually that's the, she's taken it with her to college, and she's actually read it. You know, started reading uh -huh. it, which is you know these days you're talking about a generation who, certainly in England, they they live life through their iPhone, and uh, yeah. picking up a book is a is a strange and alien experience, uh, perhaps even an antique yes. experience. But she's actually reading the book, and she's—I'm I'm astonished because it was—it's dedicated to her, and it was written. I said, "Yes, I want to tell you what it was really like," because if you're interested, this is—you know—there was so much more that you don't know about, you know. So it's—I um, wanted to address her generation and generations to come who will be told things that are not true about sixes or a very uh, warped or um, strange view of it, you know. Or journalistic, mm -hmm. or what? What's worse is the journalistic view. That's all we get yes. of everything these days. Journalists, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Would Newton ever have uh, got anywhere if he had the eye of a journalist rather than Galileo? <laughs> well, you will have to write many, many books if you want to get out of the view of the nowadays newspapers <laughs> or, yeah. or other or other journalists. Well, they've taken over. You know, they just—they seem to have taken over the entire media. They make. They think they're filmmakers. They think they can make documentaries. They think they can write books. They're, I'm surprised they're not singing on records, you know, because <laughs> they're, they're, what is it about journalists that think make them superhuman? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, well. Another, not another that I've got anything against that. journalists, you understand? <laughs> no, how would I think that? <laughs> I mean, I, it's not like I haven't done it myself. I mean, I've been an editor and written uh, for, for newspapers, so... Uh, but one wouldn't want to give one's whole life to this thing. Yeah, absolutely. But, but you say something very important when you talked about the book a little bit earlier. You said you started with the definition of what spiritual meaning means. Yeah. And also um, the very first, no, the second chapter actually, is called Pro and Anti, the Myth of Progress. So I think these are very basic informations before you actually start to enter the, the real topic of the book. And you even then go back talking about spiritual meaning in history, right? And and use a few examples. So I think this is a very important start into the book because without that, as you say, you would maybe limit um, the audience of that book to those guys of our age, the old guys, as we say. And yeah, I <laughs> and, didn't. Yeah, I, exactly. I didn't want to write the nostalgia. Uh, it, exactly. celebrate a celebration piece of that kind. No, no. Exactly. So that's my question. To whom uh, do you, do you, uh, for whom, I must say, do you write that book or did you write that book? And what's, what did you expect as an audience? People like your daughter of that age or? Well, actually, that was my, that was my naive hope. You know that 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 uh, people of my daughter's age would would if they got to hear about it uh, mm -hmm. would, would would read it. But of course, uh, I notice on the back of the book, uh, the publisher. I don't know whether this is a legal requirement, but it says at the top left, spirituality stroke occult history. Well, <laughs> uh, 
it isn't. Uh, I don't think the book is in these categories uh, at all. I think the book is. Uh, I would call, if you wanted, I'd, sort of, I'd just put it as knowledge about the subject. So would that be? Yeah. I'd be quite happy if it just said history. Gen- general um, history, I would have said exactly. Yeah, yeah, history or history or philosophy, because there's philosophy in it, obviously. Mm. But uh, no, I was. Uh, so who I would want to read is anyone who, who wants to truly understand uh, and perhaps even, and also talking to past jet people who are older than me now who might be at an age when they want to seriously reflect on that era. I mean, I'd quite like Joanna Lumley to read it and Jane Fonda and <laughs> um, De- Dennis Hopper and, uh, you know, people who made a contribution uh, and perhaps don't feel that the era is properly understood today and their their contribution is not understood. Those The survivors of the 60s, I would like them to read it very much. But yes. but, but otherwise, you know, I was thinking about future generations. Um, yeah. You know, which is uh, the hope that the book survives and, and becomes, current, becomes a currency in some way. I think the mm-hmm. trouble with every book is, you know, you can talk about your life's work, but your life's work will die with you. Uh, what will right. what will carry on is things that have gone out, gone out into the public consciousness and over a period of time work into the subconscious and then manifest if it's true. So you don't know really. I don't know who I'm writing for. It's unknown unknown persons who need to know this thing. And I felt that there are going to be people who need to know. And I think there are people today who need to know and those people I'm addressing. Yeah, William Blake said when he wrote his books that he he spoke to the spirits, you know, because yeah, it, because yeah, it, because sure. his books weren't published, but he had this mm-hmm. feeling that he had he had to communicate on a level of uh, where people in different dimensions, perhaps the future dimension, would 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 get this this material in some way. It's just something that has to be done. It's like yeah. the urge to paint. Um, you can't picture the perfect audience. Because I don't know the hundred million people out there, yeah, uh, sure. you know, so. But I know that there's a need. I, I was very aware that there's a great need for this material, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that, and that somebody it was that old thing. Somebody somebody had to do it. Right. I mean, parenthesis, uh, that is a question that can be asked to any writer or painter or musician. Is it important for you? to know who you write for, or is it not? Is it something else that drives you in general? Uh, well, I always thought that the best books address the reader. So you write as if you're addressing a person, but you don't mm. have to have a fixed idea of that person. But uh, And sometimes you might be writing to address imaginary assailants, you know, people who don't like what you're saying. Sometimes you're addressing them. Sometimes you have a feeling that you're addressing Uh, you know that you're going to speak to somebody with a similar heart, heart range of sensitivity to yourself, and you know that you're reaching that person. Other things you're so you're in a way it's it, because I've lectured as well, which is also gets more interesting the longer you do this lecturing thing. Is how do you address a room full of totally different people every time? Um, you develop. Uh, I can't. So what it's like is um, almost an intuition about who's out there at any particular time. Uh, right. all, all writing of any worth is mediumship. It's all mediumship. Mm-hmm. You're receiving mm-hmm. stuff from your own higher mental activity, intelligence. Mm-hmm. And sometimes 
the person you're writing to comes along with the message. Uh, that's how I feel about it. So, but I, I'm going to say, I wrote it for 17 to 19 year olds, uh, prefer, <laughs> preferably from the south of England, uh, you know, or I wrote it for Scots, uh, Irish, and Welsh. I mean, it, it, you know, I'm writing it. I'm writing it for the people who need to 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 respond and enjoy, especially enjoy this because it's yeah. written. All these books are written to encourage people who are seeking and who are dealing with life in this world now. That's who yeah. they're written for. People yeah. are dealing yeah. with the world now. It's not a you can trip through the sixties, but uh, you have to. You've got to bring something back from your travel. Now, you can yeah. get into my book as a voyage, and I think you'll come back with something worth showing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how individuals register that is not my, is not my uh, responsibility. Not yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Is that a fair answer? I mean, I'm being an honest answer. I'm uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my, my question might have been a little bit on the edge of being stupid, but no, uh, no, no. On, the, uh, on the other end, on the other end, I think exactly what you said uh, makes it very clear. And I, I find it very, very good how, how, how it, it feels very good what you're saying. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Now, let's get back into the 60s. Um, do you remember well and how you experienced them at the time? Yes. Um, and um, can you give us maybe some main impressions of what they were at the time? Not now, but at the time for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, I can because... My active memory uh, goes back to the age of, oh, early in my third year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, which would be probably a bit earlier than that, actually. Um, but my first important memory, the two, two first important memories, and actually the moment I think of them, they immediately train into some others. But one was that I was born deaf. And I could mm-hmm. not, if, I, I couldn't hear at all. Been oh, really? dis- discovered when my mum was in hospital that uh, I, I had no hearing, and um, so I used to. Uh, I had this huge hearing aid, uh, like a big potato on the side of my ear, made of bakelite, which they used to make records out of. Uh-huh. And uh, I just remember that sounds like <laughs> echoey sound. And uh, I remember the day my hearing arrived. I was in the front garden of the house uh, playing with a girl with, in, the, in the dirt. And it was this amazing rushing, rush, rush, rush. And okay. I could hear. Uh, that was the first thing. I remember that. And, um, How old were you then? Uh, I was three. And mm-hmm. because I hadn't heard anything, I had, to have, uh, I had to see speech therapists who taught me how to speak. Because you learn speaking from the time you're born by just being a man among people. Yeah. And so I was taught to speak by professionals, which I'm very glad about. So I have amazingly sensitive ears. Mm-hmm. But I think I was lucky, really, that I didn't hear all this crap for three years. <laughs> so, but I'm glad it, but also very glad that that, that situation changed. Um, and the first things I remember hearing were the Beatles, Please Please Me, uh, which was uh, around six, summer 63. I know it had come out earlier in England. But anyway, it was, I remember hearing it on, on the wireless radio, as they called it, on wireless. And um, that's and I Want to Hold Your Hand came out, I remember, that, uh, later that year. I remember that happening. 
Um, and of course, I remember the television. I remember the first episode of Doctor Who. Uh, really ghostly television we had that the, the, the picture came in like in waves and, yeah. um, and the room and was very the TV dark. screen was almost was almost round and yeah it was, it was almost round, but it was pearly it was like heaven, the gates of heaven you know the TV <laughs> one thing about televisions in those days was they glowed in the dark <laughs> true yeah absolutely yeah. so uh, it was uh, a, a mystical uh, mystical experience and Doctor Who already had all that. You remember Doctor Who? Did they have it in Austria? Uh, well, I remember uh, not from the time, I uh, think probably well, 20 years later. 20 so. years ago, oh, no, well, the early ones were much better because they were sort of almost crudely made by comparison, but they, they had much more, I think they had richer scripts because I think in when an idea is young, it, it, it tends to have more depth. In a way, absolutely. Um, it's like it's like the old version of Star Trek, which is yeah, and Fireball yeah. XL Five. I remember. So my first memories are a lot to do with television. I adored television. I uh, mm-hmm. loved television right through the six. I watched a lot of when it was on. Of course, it wasn't on all day in those days. It's another thing people forget. With you, yeah. you'd, you didn't watch too much television because there wasn't too much television to watch. There um, you are. Yeah, I remember President Kennedy being assassinated, and my mother uh-huh. crying. And my mother crying. You know, I remember in, it yeah. was in she was upstairs in the bedroom, and uh, and I remember memories about death, as people do. And I remember crying when I realised my grandfather had died when I was three, and mm-hmm. I'm becoming aware of that. But I mean, you you think of more sort of archetypal memories. I I remember being in Australia when the Beatles did All You Need Is Love on the uh, the One World program where they. They did first ever international satellite program in mm-hmm. some, summer 1967. Well, I was living in Australia. We had immigrated to Australia, and I watched that with this rather poor image coming in from London. And uh, I, that was that was very very interesting. And my parents' reaction to it. Oh, I had, honestly, mm-hmm. I, I, I could I, from about the age of four to five, I can remember almost month by month. You know, uh, not not every month. Not, I, but I can tell you what I was doing most of the time. Right. Uh, I was living very vividly. I was we, we immigrated to Australia, and I was very close to my parents, and we were a family. I, we, it wasn't like the children did this, but the parents did that. We did. Mm-hmm. We always went together everywhere. And my parents were very good with us. They treated us, as, as long as we were interesting, we were welcome. So I know that's more of a modern attitude, but in those days it was quite unusual. And so I saw, so I was able to see a lot of things through their eyes too. So I was traveling around the world and yeah, there's a millions of, a lot of the best things are in the, I put in the book at appropriate moments. But, Absolutely. Um, no, I, I remember a few things I read there. Yeah. 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 I think that uh, the sixties were made for children. Yeah. It was about the child. Mm. I think the essence that zeitgeist was the Crowleyan idea of the aeon of the child the celebration of innocent perception, uh, pure perception, the kind of thing Orson Welles had been actually talking about since the 1930s, the perception of the child, was made for that era. Now, I, I, that's another reason I wanted to do the book, was you read books by people who were you know, doing drugs or doing politics or doing grown-up adult things, but they always mm-hmm. forget that the, we are there, we the children. <laughs> I'm saying that now at 58. But we the children are there, we're watching you, we're watching you with different eyes to what you think you're being watched. So I wanted that that child's eye view of the period I wanted in to express as well, because I felt in many ways far more alive in the 60s than I did afterwards. 
you could almost you could almost feel the the temperature dropping as the 1970s wore on. Interesting. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll come back to that a little bit later because I have a question for later, but that's for later on about what comes afterwards. But what now would be interesting to hear if you look at the 60s with today's experience and eyes, right? Yeah. Um, what has changed in your perception or Maybe are there things that have become so much bigger than then that they dominate your view on the 60s today? Or how has that changed? How has that progressed? Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I got seriously, when I was uh, older, sort of 15, 16, 17, I took an active interest in things like French, the French movies, the Nouvelle Vague, um, so I then saw a lot of things that, I, of course, I hadn't seen as a child. You didn't, you didn't go and see Jean-Luc Godard movies when you were eight or nine. I, 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 saw, sure. I saw all the commercial films, which were so much more exciting um, mm. <laughs> and hugely memorable. We went to the cinema every week, every Friday or, and Saturday with my parents. So I saw, really? I saw a lot of the films uh, as they came out. And, but I'd missed all the arty, the arty films the X films, as we call them, the ones restricted to children. They were sure. Uh, I saw, so I saw a lot of those. So that changed my view a bit. I mean, I got a bit more knowledge about the sort of intellectual and the sort of left wing stuff that was going on in the sixties, which I didn't really notice as a child uh, mm -hmm. very much directly, um, and because there didn't seem any need. I couldn't understand what were these uh, political people going on about because. The upbringing I had had no class uh, distinctions in it that I was aware of. Right. Uh, it seemed like you could do anything as long as you you were old enough and had the will to do it. Mm -hmm. But then I guess I was it was a slightly fantasy element. I got a, my my sense of freedom came from programs like The Avengers, with Emma Peel and Patrick. You know, uh, oh John my God, yes, yes, that yeah, gave yeah, me a sense does. of human freedom and uh, power. And The Prisoner, of course, The Great, Great Prisoner, 1967-68, which changed my life, that TV program. That, that was the Gnostic event of my childhood, watching the last episode of The Prisoner in early 68 mm -hmm. uh, in mm -hmm. Australia. And I'll never forget it. I mean, that was fantastic. That was uh, an epiphany. Um, but in terms of how my view of the 60s has changed, only I've got deeper knowledge of the 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 politics, and obviously I know much more about things like the Beatles. Uh, right. I did a, a film for BBC quite a few years ago now about John Lennon, um, which was, I had to learn a lot, and I got to know a lot of people. I met a lot of people who knew the Beatles. Uh, Derek Taylor, the press officer, I got to know. I met Roy Orbison. I met Roger Waters, uh, Pink Floyd, and um, oh, all sorts of people. And uh, I got an inner feeling then. I learned a lot then about the spirituality of the Beatles and the mm -hmm. atmosphere and, and, the idea, and their particular idealism. So that was privileged information. And that came much, much later. Um, right. uh, not much of it surprised me, really, although my father, my father, of course, was he'd been in the army in the 50s and um, we always had to have our hair short. So I learned a lot. I learned to understand a lot more about the hair the hair rebellion and mm -hmm. um, 
and the pop music, which I, w- I was not encouraged to like very much in the 60s. My At the time, yeah. And, uh, I, think, I think my parents quite liked the Beatles. I remember my dad liked the Rolling Stones, I think, until about 66, I think, when the drugs came in. Once the mm-hmm. newspapers started talking about them taking drugs, I think at that moment, you know, because we were children, uh, yeah, I'm a stopped liking them. So mm. they were no longer acceptable a subject matter. Right. There was sure. a feeling. So I, I was able to understand the reaction to the to the uh, the flower power and, and and the love movement. I was able to understand that much later. I got to understand. I saw it from the other side. So yeah. that enriched my view. But again, I, was, I had to get it from the people who were there. I had to get direct uh, knowledge of it to change my views. And when I got the direct knowledge, it was very enlightening. And when I went to Oxford, my best friend was into Jimi Hendrix, who I'd never even listened to. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I had another sort of revisitation <laughs> of the period uh, when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, and I got very into, uh, I think Hendrix was uh, one of the avatars if there are such, mm-hmm. you know, he was a kind of avatar, wasn't he? Uh, very, very Absolutely, yeah. 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 So, yeah. so in a way, the 60s was being enriched all through as I got, as got older, and it's become a lodestone. I think it's the same thing that would have happened to French uh, and some German intellectuals in the 1890s who'd not been in Paris in the late 1880s and 1890s, who'd met Debussy and Satie and uh, the artists and, and writers. And that, mm-hmm. that those, you know, but it all was destroyed by the First World War, that movement, which was a spiritual movement, which was growing in Europe and in Russia, uh, was growing. And then the First World War happens and takes it away. And in many ways, I've seen since the Gulf, first Gulf War, uh, yeah. there's been a progression of erosion of these memories. And um, I think our view of the world, we've been slapped faced with a kind of uh, too much reality of the negative kind. Uh, we seem to, there's a current revisitation of the Cold War, which is a kind of fantasy of the Cold War, mm-hmm. uh, which is almost self-conscious and deliberate, uh, which is really quite inexcusable. People who are indulging in this uh, nonsense yeah. about America versus Russia shit. Right, um, absolutely, and dangerous. Yeah. Oh, well, of course, it, it's always been, it's always dangerous, all this sort of stuff, um, especially when politicians start listening to the popular beat. You know, the Austrian soldiers who went to war in 1914 were smiling. You know. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, they thought they were doing a great thing, and with any luck, they'd be at home by Christmas and all feeling. Yeah, I was going to say, they thought they would be back in three months, exactly. Exactly, yeah. and yeah. That, was, that was true all over the place. So it's a kind of, war is an indulgence, um, you know, that politicians wait for the moment uh, that they think the public are prepared to, to, to indulge it. Um, yeah. However, I don't think pe- young people today are that willing to fight for any of this stuff anymore. And I think the 60s had a lot to do with that. That you know, it, Remember that phrase they had at the period was, suppose they gave a war and nobody came. <laughs> I think we, we really... We, we we can really see that we are born the same year because um, I was just preparing that question. Do we know that that quote? Well, and you said it absolutely. That that says it all. I I sometimes wonder if we said that same quote you just said. Imagine there was war and nobody went. Um, if we said that to our youngsters today, how they would react to it? They would probably stare at you. They were what's this about? Yeah, yeah. I I would think so, but. Uh... 
It doesn't mean we don't have violence of, of other Absolutely, kinds. Absolutely, or the contrary. It means that violence is again possible because they don't know the quote anymore. Well, there's a lot of violence. I mean, the, the internet is full of uh, violent feelings. Of course, of course. Uh, now, you could say, well, people, it's better that people get their violence out in a written form, however unpleasant it is, that it's better that they're doing that than going on the street. But I think one thing leads to another. I think if you create a big enough vortex of violent feelings, it ine- ine- inevitably uh, people are going to get hurt at the end of it. Um, uh, that, that's one possibility. And also you could say um, if, if on the street, at least, if there is real physical violence, then it's out and On the screen, it's so remote, it's so far away that you don't feel it exists. Mm. And you think you do, you're doing something quite harmless, but you don't. You do something very, very yeah. dangerous. Yeah, I, yeah. but uh, I, I hope we're not going to have that sort of discussion uh, because I, there were so much more interesting aspects. of that. This okay. idea of being freed by imagination, I think, is very powerful. To say something like, yep. suppose they yes. gave a war and nobody came requires a liberation of imagination, which our ancestors did not have. They just did sure. not have the, generally speaking, they didn't have the ability either to think these things or to, to, to imagine them. To imagine them, yeah. But they Definitely. were, the, you know, even in, even in the very brilliant artists were very, uh, still driven by, you know, patriotic fervor and things like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, the convention also. Yes, yes. And you, you, it was very difficult to get to, get to people um, through the encasing of the ego uh, that was never questioned. I think people didn't use words like ego in the 19th century. Therefore, egoism was never questioned. People people didn't have psychological portraits of leaders. Um, uh, I mean, look at the naivety. Again, (laughs) inevitably, you come to this thing, the naivety with which people greeted Adolf Hitler, you know, it's That, sure. that they didn't. I know there were people in Berlin because I did a book about Berlin who did understand that the man was uh, mentally, sub, you know, not in any condition to be given power. Yeah. He was psychologically deformed to a degree where you wouldn't give power to a person like this. Yes. Uh, uh, I think we're a bit more aware now that uh, of psychology, that of where human beings can go wrong. Uh, and I think we had the imagination to to break our way from the image. However, we uh, one of the things about the 60s has turned out to be a double-edged sword, which is this liberation of television, of the image. Um, uh, people are also being oppressed by images. Uh, they were then, but we the 60s was a delight in the image, generally. We didn't see that many. I mean, the Vietnam yeah. War was always on, but it wasn't on TV in, in, in England very much. In America, we went there all the time. Yeah, exactly. But of course, when it did come in in America, it did become a continually nightly reminder that they were they were getting too much television of the war, and and that probably affected the young people. And that's become when the when the press the the TV journalists realize that power. Of course, it's now endless. All we ever get now is journalists standing around in what looked like war zones, making us all depressed. Um, yeah. So it is everything good and bad in all this, isn't there? We're getting we're getting a direct knowledge which was denied in the past. The, the, mm. the, we're getting the reality. Um, I personally think that uh, that it was time to look at the spiritual meaning of the sixties because uh, the, we're beginning to forget. <laughs> we're beginning to forget. <laughs> Absolutely. We're beginning to forget. There was, you know, that it it it, it wasn't, it, you know, it, it, what made that balloon rise. 
what right, made that balloon right. rise. In in sixty seven, sixty eight, you were still in Australia. Yes, that was the time. So, Great time to be there, I can tell you, because it was like you got all this, you got all the buzz without uh, the un, the unpleasant aspect that was going on. I mean, we we saw demonstrations in Paris. Uh, right. I remember talking about them at school. It was quite remote. We did think they must have gone mad. <laughs> why are they? Yeah. Why are the, Why are these people so angry in France? Well, don't they? Aren't they? You know, what's the matter with them? Why? Why are they so hostile? Well, of course, you know, we weren't living under Charles de Gaulle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, you could, but. There, there was this copycat thing, wasn't there? Uh, because they were rioting in Paris, well, you had to have a riot in London, you had to have a riot in, you know, Amsterdam, and you ha- have a riot in in uh, Berkeley, California. Right, um, right. <laughs> there was, you know, it, it's it, it's so funny. Last year we had all those those those, those memories of the because it was a kind of an anniversary of 1968, and here in Austria we're really compared to Paris or other places. Nothing happened, you know, but they were making big festivities out of the revolution of 68. And I, when you saw the images, they said, what revolution? It would never happen. <laughs> I do say this. I do try to tell people that, you know, that things like people who were into the Rolling Stones or the Beatles at that period, late, mm-hmm. late 60s, were, were really a minority. And, yeah. and uh, it was um, most, it, most of England. You, you watch those sort of pop programs that were made for European consumption around that time. They're so tame and, and pretty and, and harmless. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's all, it's all like a fairy story. Um, but there, was, there, there was no, there was no sense of the harsher political realities. The truth of the matter is many, many people in Europe were, were content with a sensation of things improving regardless of problems elsewhere but there was a sense of things improving there was an upward mm-hmm. upward feeling about life uh, in yeah. in europe at that time and if anyone says yeah but if you'd gone to africa or if you'd gone to this little place or if you were in uruguay or Chile, it was different etc cetera, etc cetera. uh mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is that well hang on a minute these people have been through two world wars didn't they enjoy it deserve a good time Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't don't, uh, accept the Western Europe is guilty all the time viewpoint. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, it's it's very religious. You know, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. We must all... We must all suffer for the sins of, of some people and all that sort of stuff. It is very religious. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Right. yeah so very, what we want is very just, Catholic, actually. It is, yes. It's a huge this play on guilt all the time. It, yeah. And, um, but making people feel guilty also gives you power. Well, yeah, I think it, 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 it robs them of their sense of independence and freedom of, mm. of thought and people continually questioning uh, a call, and also the questioning these days with this political correctness not, uh, nonsense is uh, people are only questioning certain aspects of their behavior anyway. Yeah, um, definitely. But definitely. Uh, I, definitely. it is odd. Yeah, there's no doubt. If you read my book, you are going to look at your own time a bit differently after reading it. <laughs> You're going to look at today. 
what's happening to yeah, different eyes. Definitely. Well, uh, I was coming to that. But before we go there, um, um, there are two terms that you define very early in the book, one you already mentioned. And just very briefly, without giving away the whole thing, but just in order that we also know what the book later on in the chapters is talking about, could you define in the order you prefer um, spiritual meaning for, for in that sense and the myth of progress, what it is to you? Spiritual meaning. Spiritual meaning, you, you said you had to define it in the first place, right? Could you just for our listeners here define it in a few phrases and then also what you would call the myth of progress as, as one of the chapters is named? Uh, no. No. <laughs> Thank you. Next I, question. <laughs> I think uh, I think I could have uh, the first question. I couldn't have written the book if I'd had the answer to what is what how to define the phrase spiritual meaning. What I have, mm -hmm. what I tried to do is to explore what this means, right? Because it is not a conception that can be defined. Um, I think, what is it uh, Stanislas de Gator said? Uh, a God that is defined is a finite God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say that again. A God that is defined <laughs> is not is a finite God. Yeah, uh, sure. So when you're that talking... That a new meaning to the word define. You start asking the spiritual meaning uh, of a thing uh, seriously and go with it, you will find the, the, the answer doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. So there's no brief answer to that question, right. uh, well, thank ex you ex that. except a semantic one, which is to say, obviously, we are talking about uh, understanding the inner dimension of, mm. of a phenomenon, which understanding uh, what, is, what was intended by that uh, phenomenon, and we are mm. understanding what it can possibly uh, intend to mean to us. So right. in order to understand the spiritual meaning, first of all, you've got to have some idea of what you mean by spiritual. And there we are talking about uh, two aspects. One is the, the human psyche, that which affects the human psyche the most profoundly. And the other thing is, is the idea that beyond the psyche is the purely spiritual, uh, where you receive... Uh, super-rational intuition. And the difficulty with super-rational intuition is while we depend on it uh, for, prog for real progress of the human being and, and culture in general, um, it is not something we can put into words. It is the essence of the word. It is what we try to express with language. But language cannot encompass it. This is the point I've been about definition is you can't define, uh, you can't define the ultimately spiritual. Spiritual is that which is not the defined, but is fundamental. Now, from a scientific modernist point of view, of course, you say, well, a, a word that can't be defined is a meaningless word. Uh, and all I can say is, yes, from a rationalistic perspective, from the purely rational mm -hmm. perspective, that's correct. Um, but when, I'm, when we look at spiritual meaning, we're, we're, we're looking deeper than that. There's a phrase in the third degree charge of English Freemasonry, and I presume it's in, it's in other different forms of Freemasonry, where uh, when you are charged in the third degree, the Master Mason degree, it says, um, you were asked in the second degree, the fellow craft, to explore the hidden mysteries of nature and science. 
and to give your attention to the seven liberal arts, which are rhetoric, grammar, mm-hmm. astronomy, uh, geometry, mathematics, uh, music. And you've given, and he said, these will bring you, but these will only bring you to the throne of God before, sorry, before the throne of God. And then you are faced with the fact that you, you may intellectually accept that things have a cause, okay? That's what it means. You intellectually recognize through study of the universe, you recognize that everything has a cause. So there is a principle behind everything. And we're not going to give that principle a name, but we'll say, we'll say there is a principle. So you can recognize that intellectually. Reason can get you that far before the throne of God. But then you are faced with the, what is called the king of terrors, which is the fear of death which is what gets us all excited and upset. And he said, how do you deal with this, the king of terrors? And for that, we need a light which is beyond the ordinary reason. Now, the rational enlightenment, by deifying reason, cut itself off from the higher light. And Thoth Hermes, your radio program, I presume exists because you would like to reopen that roof and allow this light back in. Absolutely. So uh, I remember Gillis Quispel, the Gnostic scholar, said to me one afternoon in Beethoven, he said, um, the Enlightenment was a blackout. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one, yeah. Yeah, and unfortunately, so much of our intellectual uh, posturing of the 20th century has relied upon the materialism which of the 19th century, which stemmed from the arrogant rationalism of the 18th century. Now, while we can understand why reason was, uh, was, was enthroned uh, in the 18th century, I don't mean physically as in what happened in Paris in 1792, uh, but the reason, obviously, we know that religious hysteria had reached absurd levels in the 17th century with the Thirty mm-hmm. Years' War, and obviously people said, look, enough of all this religious uh, crap. Uh, let's have some straightforward, sense-based reason. Uh, we're, we're sensible creatures. We're, we can live rationally. I, this I understand totally. Uh, things had gone wrong in the religious sphere, no doubt about it. Um, but however, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. the spiritual light, uh, which people started going to India for, of course, in the 60s, uh, mm-hmm. with, with a certain amount of fair intuition up to a point, um, because India had retained the tradition in, uh, in Vedanta that the higher light can enter through the top of the skull and permeate the human being and enlighten the, the psychic and spiritual structure of human beings. Uh, that is allowed for in the whole Raja Yoga, royal yoga, it is yeah. the, mean, the meaning of the word yoga is union. And what you're talking about, the union you're talking about is the integration of the human being with his source. And uh, that becomes part of the new religion, new religious picture that the 60s also must be understood for in terms of its spiritual meaning. So if you're talking about the spiritual meaning of the 60s, part of the spiritual meaning of the 60s is the reopening of the spiritual eye. And, and it becomes, for the first time, popularized uh, mm-hmm. because Maharishi Mahesh Yogi met Mick Jagger and John Lennon and, uh, and, and, and the Beach Boys. And they took back in their, okay, an ersatz form, you know, very simplistic mantra yoga, very basic idea, mm-hmm. which was, mm-hmm. you know, 
overrated in, as itself. I mean, mantra yoga is okay up to a point, but it's not like the answer. Um, but it was something that the um, Mahesh wanted, uh, believed that it was his duty to put forward in the same way that uh, the Krishna movement wanted to say that you could re- return to God through devotion, simple devotion to, to Krishna. Um, these become part of the spiritual meaning. So the spiritual meaning of the sixties in that sense, you say, what do I mean by spiritual meaning? Is an awakening to spiritual meanings, that things yeah. have a spiritual yeah. meaning, yeah. that life yeah. has a spiritual meaning. You see, what had happened to the Beatles and the culture, especially in America, was this fantastic achievement of materialism, the sensation that we had conquered nature and that we were going, we're heading for a luxury lifestyle. And we're going to all have the split level condo and have this fabulous 1950s style American culture. That's what everyone in Europe practically wanted. They wanted, wanted, yeah. They wanted the American way of life as it had come through on television with these very happy families with a big family car and very reasonable. Yeah, Dor- and Doris Day singing in the kitchen. Fantastic. Like, yeah. Gingham, yeah. Gingham wives. Yeah. Mm. Now, what certain people began to realize in the 60s is what sensitive people have realized all through time is that an abundance of materialism does not satisfy the soul. Now, people like the Beatles had more money than they knew what to do with uh, for a certain amount of time or thought they did anyway. And uh, they they found that it wasn't the answer. Mm -hmm. Now, while the rest of humanity, as it were, was thinking, well, that is the answer. That's what we need. We, We all need this materialism, they said, well, it, it, we've had it and it's, it's not done it for us, I tell you. That's not it, yeah. <laughs> so the spiritual meaning really is what was lacking from our culture. It's what's missing. So another way of answering your question, what do you mean by spiritual meaning, is I say, well, look at what you've got and ask yourself what is missing. Now, I lived mm-hmm. in Germany quite a lot in the 80s. And that was a real experience for me. And I had lovely friends and and, uh, some of the nicest people. I had more friends in Germany than than I had in England. Uh, And I lived in Gießen in Hessen and I lived in Berlin. And much as I, you know, loved the the new generation of Germans then who were sort of around my age or or 10 years older uh, or 10 or five years younger anyway. Um, And I heard about the green movement and I got involved with that and the alternative and all this stuff. Um, but underneath it all, people were always saying things like, meine Probleme ist, I used to hear this, I heard this all the time, meine Probleme ist, my problem. And I said, what, what, what problem is this? You know, and it was always they got some sort of sense of there's something wrong with their psychology, that if they could sort of rationally work out, <laughs> if they could go to a psychiatrist or read the right book, then they'd get this psychological <laughs> thing right. And then they could be um, experience some sort of uh, liberation and they'd be good uh, social uh, members of society. And I say, well, you're, you're living in the psychic realm. Your whole culture is. You, what, and then it became clear to me what had happened to Germany after West Germany, I'm talking about, mm-hmm. FRG. Uh, what had happened to Germany after the war was clearly Hitler was rejected as being irrational. And because uh, Nazism involved this ersatz, uh, you know the word ersatz? Is that still yeah, used? Sure. Uh, ersatz mysticism, uh, blut und Boden, and all this yeah. shit, and ra- ra- race identity, and so on. So yes. all that stuff, um, which was a kind of perversion of, of theosophy, even the swastika and all that. Uh, because 
that irrationalism was was the explanation of the Adenauer uh, return of the Social Democrats. They they were basically saying where, where Germany went wrong was they started believing all this spirit, pseudo spiritual shit, and yet again the the spiritual forgets the word pseudo, and you lose the distinction. So the young people didn't have a religious education at all, uh, and it, and. It, which was a good thing because I had a friend who was raised a Catholic and he had a miserable time in Trier um, because the Catholic education was so insane um, because he, he refused to believe in uh, Mother Mary. Uh, my friend was, they, the priest got him into the army, you know, like a punishment, mm. you know. There was, a, there was a lot of this, in, this was going on in the 60s and 70s. And meanwhile, of course, the fingering children, you know, as we now know, uh, yeah, so, I know, yeah. but what was missing, what was missing was spiritual meaning. What was missing was spiritual meaning. And I, I felt that and saw it. Then I went to East Germany not many years ago, uh, the newly liberated, quote, uh, mm. East Germany. Well, they took away this, the, the communism and they've replaced it with a new car. So they all got, <laughs> they all got a car or a tractor. Uh, I remember talking to this young guy who was working in this really nice hotel. They'd done it up, but there was nobody in it because nobody wanted to go to Tangamunda on holiday. And, uh, you know, he just said, uh, there's ohne Zukunft, there's no future. There's no future. There's, there's nothing to believe in. And I lo- noticed all the churches were closed, all the old churches. Nobody went to church. There was, sure. But there, there wasn't even, they didn't have Maharishi. <laughs> they didn't have anything. Yeah, yeah. So what yeah, we're talking, yeah, what spiritual meaning? You, it's a bit like wind in a sail. You can't see it, but when it stops blowing, you, you the, the ship stops. You suddenly realize it. Yeah. 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 I mean, the word for spirit means air anyway. Te- you know, yeah. But sure. purely, purely etymologically, sure. we're talking about something that is powerful but invisible. It's also interesting. I mean, that goes a bit far, maybe because we might not have many people here who speak who speak German. But the word what in Austria. Is, yeah, no, no, I'm here on that program. <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> but um, I was trying to address. I was trying to address my reader. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, this spiritual, the, the word spir- uh, spiritual in German, you have two words for 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 spiritual actually, because spiritual has a kind of a mystical, almost religious meaning, and geistig is the other the other expression in German, which means really spiritual in a purely uh, non-religious meaning, right? And that that um, double function of the word doesn't really exist in English, does it? No, but you we are, but there is an equivalent duality because. Most people used to talk in this country about reli- the word. The word that would be used was religious, and you would have said a religious meaning. But mm-hmm. because there has grown up again since the 1960s a suspicion of organised religion, so people now don't talk about religious meaning. They will usually use the word spiritual, and this mm-hmm. is this is a word that people generally are quite content with. But you speak to a journalist and you say that this is about the spiritual meaning, and they. They don't want to know because, right, right. in fact, they just read spiritual as a sort of combination of uh, probably weird, strange, new age. And then also, <laughs> thanks to jihadism, I mean, the real misery of, oh, not the real misery, one of the aspects of the, the jihadist mania is that it's made a total intolerance of anything that is religious, in England anyway. I don't know how mm-hmm. true that is in other places. 
But mm-hmm. so now the subject isn't discussed at all. Yeah. Well, I must say, uh, I really love your editors. And uh, I'm not saying this because because they gave me a book to read, but I really do. But um, the cover of the book is maybe a bit misleading. Uh, yes, I'd agree with that. that. There <laughs> is hemp, there is hippies, there is mushrooms, there is the om sign, you know. <laughs> it's a bit... It's a bit Unilateral. Let's put it that way. <laughs> the cover that I wanted, uh, the cover that I wanted for the book was Eve Klein, uh, Eve Klein mm-hmm. jumping into space off the wall in Paris in black and white. Uh, right. That's the cover. They they said that in America that wouldn't be appreciated. It would be a reference. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. They. Yeah, I think they course. obviously thought that the the natural audience for this book would be people who listen to um, the Grateful Dead, Jeff Snareplane, uh, mm-hmm. J- Janis Joplin. Um, and that, so that's why they thought the audience, the natural audience attraction would be. I mean, it didn't, it didn't overwhelm me with joy when I saw um, psilocybin ma- mushrooms on the cover. Uh, mm. But I, I have to accept that it's a commercial world of we're course. dealing with. But of course, it's going, the image is going against what I'm saying in the book. That's the, the annoying thing for me. Yes, yeah, well, that, that's what I felt. Pretty, yeah. pretty but, but, I mean, but please don't judge the book by the cover. On the other hand, there you are. But you know, you when my daughter saw the cover, she said, "Oh, I love it." <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, maybe we are just too old, Tobias. You know, <laughs> you speak for yourself, old boy. <laughs> <laughs> We have to go for the time that we ha- we still have now. We have to talk about music because, okay. of course, music is part of that book and it's an important part of the book. It even started because of music, you said in the beginning, because your daughter was listening to, to, to the birds and everybody else. So um, let's talk about music a, f- uh, a few moments now, about the music and the spiritual meaning of the music of the 60s for you, because you're a musician yourself. Yes. Uh, and, and yeah, well, I'll leave you the stage with that. The music is spiritual sometimes because there is an actual direct and obvious spiritual component. I mean, George Harrison's music after 1965 yeah, sure. is self-consciously trying to evoke, uh, invoke uh, God in the listener and yeah. ask questions. So, so there's the spiritual aspect in that way. But much more importantly, the, the, develop, the very extraordinarily fast development especially in pop music and the quality increase uh, and therefore the broadened sensitivity of what sound could do uh, was obviously exploring the inner being of people. And we know that Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys smoked marijuana and wrote um, Caroline No and smoked some more marijuana and started getting into the whole pet sounds and then developing the smile. And the movement towards conceptualization of uh, universal themes starts in the music. And some would say that was a bad thing and the certain visceral power of the, the black music impulse, the R&B and the Smokey Robinson and, and the whole Motown and, and all of that is getting, gets lost under this sort of grandiose, uh, what becomes prog rock, Pink Floyd, mm-hmm. um, but uh, however you put it, I mean, for me, the most def- definable 60s music for me personally is Burt Bacharach and uh, uh, John Barry, the, the film composer. To me, they are the, they are the pinnacle of mm-hmm. the 60s music for me personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's mm-hmm. a very personal thing. 
Um, mm. There is such an optimism, such an airiness, and such a profound romanticism in Burt Bacharach and Hal David's songs of the 60s. I feel that when I listen to those, these songs are from a place where war and strife are dying and a new, uh, fresher, but still heartfelt and tragic uh, elements of tragedy, but also elements of hope in people and in the power of love. This power of love is what's coming through in the music. The love supreme in John Coltrane is coming through in the jazz. You are getting an increase by, by 65. You're starting to get love itself is manifesting as pure music. And this is unheard of. We've, there's been nothing like this since Schubert, really. Uh, and even in those days, this love theme was constrained. But in, in the 60s, it breaks out of itself. It tears itself from the womb of conventional pop. And, and becomes an all-enveloping atmosphere, which becomes for either irresistible for some or, of course, the, the arch enemy and satanic for the old world that doesn't want this new light that's coming in. So the love thing, people might be embarrassed, but I don't care. Uh, love is what the music is about. It's about loving music in a new way. Uh, there is a a consciousness of the materialism of the music industry, a desire to break away from those constraints. Even things like Paul McCartney saying to EMI, we want the cover of Sgt. Pepper to be paint, painted and put together by Peter Blake, who is a trained artist, and Jan Howarth. And the, the covers start to change the records because the, the artists are taking individual uh, control they're being listened to. They're writing their own music. Again, this is a new thing. I love Frank Sinatra, but he never wrote a song uh, as far as I know that he recorded, and that's not a criticism at all. What he did was, inter I'd rather Frank had sung some of the Beatles numbers, you know, if you like, <laughs> but it, because he has this great voice. But the point is you are getting authentic feelings coming out in music, and Bob Dylan shows the way that you don't even have to know more than four or five chords to do something yeah. special. So there's a rediscovery of what simple music can achieve. Uh, how do we account? How do we account for the incredible melodic development, the sheer joy of melody we find in the music in the 60s? There have been scientific tests done recently where they've analysed pop music from the 60s to the present day, and they've proved mm -hmm. that in terms of interest, in the technical sense, the music has been on a long, long decline until yeah. we are now sort of with minimal interest in the music. By, comp by comparison, I know that a lot of people like what they hear today. They've got used to it. It's familiar to them. That's the taste that they're used to. But they haven't had the seven-course meal. But but you know one should do the same test on the on the wordings of on wordings of um, fiction work nowadays and, and compare them to the sixties. I think one would achieve the same result, wouldn't we? Absolutely. I think people were intellectually uh, more uh, uh, the standards the standards were higher. Certainly yeah. in England. In England, in the last uh, ten uh, is it ten years? How long have we been going now? Since so God. In the last 20 years, there's been a deliberate attempt by the BBC and other uh, organizations to deliberately lower the intellectual level of programming. Now, they do this, they say, so that, you know, to make it more inclusive. Well, yeah. 
this is insane. If you, what is the point of being included in something which is of a low standard? Exactly. But they'll keep telling. But, but they'll keep telling you that they oh they are the high standard. Well, they're not. They are intellectual pygmies by comparison to the commentators of the past, and the work they're producing is ephemeral and will be swiftly forgotten. In the meantime, a generation are losing their compass. They are uh, not aware of what's been achieved in the past. They're not being introduced to it, uh, and they are being allowed to to develop the most trivial mental states uh, from minimal. Uh, levels of information and interpretation. It's tragic. Yeah. It's tra- yeah. it's true yeah. tragedy. I see yeah. it. I see and, it. And yeah. it's absolutely, absolutely. You know, I mean, yeah. all, and we we we. I spent years trying to develop this thing called Western esotericism, which is a, a serious way of looking at uh, the spiritual movements of Western the Western world. You know, Europe and America and um, mm. Russia in the in the nineteenth century and so on. And it's not. Uh, we are, you, there is tremendous re- resistance to it. Uh, it's really they just don't want the... Uh, the feeling I have is the powers that be don't want the children to know anything. They just want to... They're just, just about capable of voting. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And, yeah. Serve, yeah. And, and, serving, yeah. and serving the banks, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Well... We sound a bit like Waldorf and Settler, both of us, but I couldn't agree more than to what you're saying. Well, that's a, these, are, these are just parts of the spiritual meaning question. They, 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 yeah, we're, 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 certainly, we're developing certainly, into a spiritually meaningless uh, society. Uh, in that spiritual vacuum, of course, there are going to be some poor souls who are going to go for the easy answers. You know, they're going to become yeah. fundamentalist because fundamentalism offers a, uh, a very uh, um, easy, easy, easy easily digestible and also gives a nice outlet for all that hatred and, yeah, sure, uh, and, sure. div- and works on it. Um, so, no, we, are, we, are, uh, uh, we're, we have been going in the wrong direction for quite a long time. Like the U- the European yeah. Union clearly has become an engine of, of, of destruction in Europe, totally contrary to the, the rhetoric. Um, the whole the feeling one gets is... That the more you force people together, the more you will split them apart. That's the nature. Yeah, that is unfortunately true. That, you know, if they'd just gone easy and relaxed and uh, let things develop, let people develop in their own way instead of trying to impose a, a system. Yeah, sure. Uh, they, they would have. They would have had uh, success. They're more likely. The, the system at the moment is more likely to generate uh, conflict than, than heal it. And to heal it. Yeah. Unfortunately, true. Well, Absolutely. this is a bureaucracy. This is what happens when you let a bureaucracy take control. If they watch The Prisoner, the episodes of The Prisoner with Patrick McGurn from the 60s, you see what happens yeah. when the bureaucracy becomes bigger than what the bureaucracy serves. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm not always a fan of the British um, historian Paul Johnson, but uh, one of the sayings that it really couldn't couldn't agree more with him is that when he says bureaucracy necessarily protects itself yeah. because if they would do what they should do they would have to break up <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah this is so this is very true very true yeah. i mean yeah. france has a bureaucratic uh, uh, i I, hes- i hesitate to use the word leader uh, leader is somebody that people want to follow isn't it as i understand the word leader is <laughs> this is a person people want to follow not somebody yes. who is in, who is imposed on them by a system Uh, right. That is not a leader. That is something quite different. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You, absolutely. We, we choose our leaders in the sense that we recognize that somebody's um, doing what we want, to do, we want them to do, you know, and, and, and galvanizes. Yeah. 
But of course, I'm with Bob Dylan. Uh, don't follow leaders. Watch the parking meters. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, we what we should be moving for is people are able to uh, master themselves and and lead themselves, and for that they need uh, discipline and knowledge, and also a love of freedom and a love of love. Uh, in in other words, a, an enlightened, um, in the sense of Andrei would say, Christian society that that sort of Christianity that Jesus I think believed in, and, mm. which, and which the church has been working against for for two thousand years. For 2,000 years, <laughs> at least for 1,700 years. Well, I'm with Her Hermes Trismegistus is a pretty good alternative way of getting your spiritual meat. Well, you're adding more and more spiritual meaning to Thoth Hermes. I'm thanking you. Well, that's, all I, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> I have two, two more questions for you, if, if I may. On the back of the of the cover, it says the, that this book is Tobias Sturton's most personal book, and that's why I'm asking that question because my personal uh, biggest memory I have of the '60s is, believe it or not, the moon landing. Yeah, I remember when I was seven at the time, and I was sitting in my bed and um, trying to sleep in that same crouched way that poor Neil Armstrong had to in his Apollo uh, ship, and and was. I hated myself because in the morning I was waking up and lying stretched out in bed and then I hadn't wanted to. So that was really my thing in the 60s. Do you have a thing in the 60s that was the memory or does, does this not exist for you? Is it too much that, that was there for you? A defining moment. Mm -hmm. A defining moment, there you are. Yeah. Um... It wasn't the moon landing, uh, much as I ad adored the whole business. I, I think that it keeps coming back where it was the day, the night I watched The Prisoner uh, final episode, mm -hmm. Fallout, in uh, I think it was January 68. Uh, yeah, I think that was, there were, oh, there were two more. There were, yeah, well, yes, there's a very personal one, which I, I, I don't easily talk about, but I was five years old in the garden at my parents' home, and I became aware of uh, uh, being beyond the, the the nature of being beyond my individuality. Mm -hmm. uh, it was mm -hmm. eternal, that I, I could not die. I became aware of uh, immortal, well, eternal life. I became aware of it as a child aged five, and uh, that was fantastic, and that changed me. Uh, that was almost like the next thing after getting my hearing when I was three, a couple of years later, I realized that um, uh, I, had, I experienced Satori, aged five. By every definition I've read of Satori, that was must have been, I didn't know it. I, I just was, it, for me, it was just a joy of being. And it, that, mm. that set me up for everything else that was to follow. And of course, has led to a certain amount of disappointment in life. <laughs> uh, but that was, that was probably the moment That was the moment. Sure. And I think watching The Prisoner's last episode reminded me, or it was great to see it reflected because the end, the end episode is when the prisoner breaks out of the village, which is a kind of uh, um, a virtual society he's been forced into because he will not conform. And he breaks out. And then, they, but he's always been, who's running this thing? Who's running this thing? This was the thing. Who is number one? And then, of course, mm -hmm. he finds number one is himself, himself that we are the authors of our own imprisonment now i think yeah. that also is the spiritual meaning of the 60s mm. uh one of the of the many parts of the the rainbow of that 
sense. There were so many yeah. spiritual meanings, uh, you can't, you almost can't move for them. But that was a big, yeah. that was a big one for me. So I think those, the, those two things, which are two sides. Mm-hmm. One was what happened to inside of me, and the other, yeah. when I saw that reflected outside, uh, yeah. across the whole world. Of course, that program was shown in in mm-hmm. a lot of countries. Not not enough, in my view. It should be broadcast yeah. in China uh, regularly <laughs> um, because they they are living in the village. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing this very personal moment also because I'm very touched by that. Yeah, thank you. Last question. Um, I, I, well, the 60s are certainly a defining destiny of, of, of our history and of our personal history also. But um, sometimes I get the impression that also the 80s and 90s in a very different way, but the 80s especially, um, with their aspect of freedom and, well, uh, Maybe it was because I was a bit older already and I realized it more, but um, do you see other periods in your life as central, as centrally important in that same way as the 60s or is there none so far? Um, well, in the way to me, uh, the 60s are, were a seed, a seed that is growing all the time. Um, sometimes it's in the shade and it doesn't grow. I watched the, I watched the, the 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 weakening of the brew in the seventies, uh, but then there's a sort of resurgence. Um, it was very strange uh, when John Lennon was shot. The effect of that, I think, had a lot to do with what happened in the early eighties. The music started to change. Interestingly, um, the punk movement transmogrifies into uh, a new kind of anarchic creativity um, with a romantic aspect. I loved the 80s uh, insofar as I was old enough to be out doing things that I'd only read about before. <laughs> um, and I had, uh, I suppose, yeah, of course, very different again. Um, the superficial impression of the 80s was, of course, great braces and bonfire of the vanities and stock market and popular capitalism in England and America. Yeah, but I think it was also a time when people were uh, were thinking uh, widely and uh, yeah. there was a great deal of personal freedom, I think that's fair to say, if you wanted, yeah, if you wanted so. it. Uh, there was, if you wanted it, yeah. And, and there had, of course, there'd been this great expansion of tolerance. Suddenly, mm-hmm. you, you, a lot of the things that people in the 60s fought for we, we were in a position to take for granted. You know, yeah. you, you could have psychic exploration, you could take LSD uh, without necessarily, um, with the entire panoply of the state falling on you. Yeah. Um, or yeah. you could have hair however you liked it. In terms of personal expression, this, the 80s had a lot going for it uh, as a decade. Uh, but of course what it doesn't have is, is it's not really a decade. I mean, we're only calling these decades, you're saying the 80s, 90s, I believe that's only because of the 60s. You see, the 60s was the mm. first self-conscious decade that really had um, decade consciousness. And this is because, as I see it, President Kennedy's speech of 62, when he says, by the, 19th, by the end of the 60s, we will, America will put a man on the moon. Mm, yeah. That defined the decade before it had even started, as it were, before mm. it got going. And the trajectory of that statement is entirely upwards into completely new worlds. 
We were going to put man where he had never been before. This is such an analogy of the spiritual ascent. We're going to break into the space where people thought for thousands of years it was where angels lived. This was the realm of spiritual powers, and man was going out there in the confidence of his faith and his science, and he's going out there and he's going to do this harmless thing of landing on the moon. Well, some would say it wasn't really harmless. It was an impropriety. But I think that that means that no decade will ever match it uh, because you've got to have that kind of hopeful, optimistic, upward-going trajectory. Now, the 80s doesn't really have that, Uh, certainly English history. The English history of that time was a period of a lot of conflict. Um, but I, but my 80s really was spent in Germany, uh, the, the bit that I liked anyway. Um, the 90s, I, I had great hopes at the early 90s. I thought I, I was prepared to believe that, that the young people through raves and and that were going to become a bit more spiritual. And I did meet a lot of yeah. a lot of middle class kids who were uh, spiritually minded uh, and who wanted to be Gnostics or. Uh, they wanted to go to India or they wanted to do this stuff. Um, but it was a kind of a slightly weak version. But, of course, for them, after being patronizing, uh, for them it was new. So I presume that if you were part of that and it was new to you, that would have been your 60s. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I have to say since that time, uh, things have not been going in a terribly good no. direction, have they? No. I, I think 2001 changed a lot also for obvious reasons. Do you mean the, mm. the 9-11 business? Stuff? Yeah. Was that? Uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe the 9-11 was just an expression of something, but it, it certainly was, to me, it feels like a, a, a changing point. Yeah, I don't think it... I mean, obviously, it was so... As a physical uh, statement of, the distru- mm. of, of destructiveness, um, as a symbol... I mean, they really yeah, they, yeah. they achieved the, yeah. they achieved their propaganda. Of course, they toppled yeah. Babel, didn't they? Toppled Babel. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. was what they were after. This image of a, of a, yeah. of a yeah. symbolic, yeah. and of course, it was very powerful. Um, and I don't think it's been responded to well at all. Quite, quite true. absolutely, absolutely. Um, and that's why I'm saying maybe it was just that was just a combination point. Maybe it all had to lead somehow there. You know. No, I don't think so. I think I think I do. I do think from Western history's point of view, what's happened in the Middle East is a kind of crazy aberration uh, that can be traced. I mean, if we we do not have the time, if we trace what what's gone on in the Middle East and the development of uh, the, the resurgence, I should say, of you know every if you look at the whole last uh, fourteen hundred years of European history, and certainly the Middle East. Every so often, you get this resurgence of the jihadism. You know, yeah. it's been it's a it's been a reg- It's a bit like Halley's comet. You know, <laughs> it comes round every so often. Yeah, it's just the trouble is now it's come round into a world that's lit at her that has heard Bert Bacharach, and it beca- it's so absurd now to drag out before our eyes beheadings, yeah. literal Quranic. Um, Bedouin uh, beliefs about women, yeah. um, all this stuff, and to have it reported as if it should be taken uh, seriously. I don't mean seriously as a, as, as a security issue, but that, 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 that it has a, that it's on an intellectual par with where yeah. we've reached after two world wars um, and the whole history of the uh, the Renaissance, Enlightenment. 
uh, counter-enlightenment, scientific development, the industrial age, the technological. It's, it's such a throwback. It's almost, uh, it's, 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 it's rank with absurdity. And yeah. what is astonishing is the kind of impotence way we approach it. It seems to me, I don't know, it's certainly in England, I, I feel, because of this ludicrous relativism, cultural relativism, which has been fostered by the United Nations in its, some of its departments, the, the belief of one group is always equal to the belief of another. And it is merely a relativity, you know. So mm-hmm. the world through the jihadist eyes is as true in his eyes as the world through my eyes or so on. Of um, course, yeah. Well, on that basis, uh, you know, you could never run a motorway. <laughs> yeah. You have I like I like your I like your comparisons. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because you can't have everyone running around with their own world worldview sure. when you have got a system which requires a certain amount of objective knowledge. Yeah. And our yeah. society requires this and we we are not we do not wish to go back to the stone age. Yeah. Or to the yeah. or to the crusades or mm-hmm. or any of these uh these Periods which are of great historic interest, but I don't want to live in them. Yeah. You know, and I, the great thing about the 60s was this feeling we were going into something better. But, but having said that, there was great naivety. And so in, that, in, in the true sense, that's why I wrote the book, The Spiritual Meaning of the 60s. Spiritual meaning of the 60s can be revived now. Tobias, this... This was a great talk where we also talked about the spiritual meaning of the 60s. <laughs> But this was, this was, um, it, it, it makes me hope for more at some, at some other moment because, because I think there's so much interesting things we could talk about and hear from you about. So thank you for that. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for giving me an opportunity to, uh, to speak and, and that some people have been kind enough, I hope, kind and considerate enough to, to listen. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dubais. Tobias is a wonderful chap. I think you could tell that it was real fun to talk with him. And as I said in the interview, I'm sure there will be further occasions to hear him. In the meantime, I already know that a new interesting book by him is at the horizon towards the end of the year. So watch out. This now ends today's episode, friends and listeners. Thank you for listening. The third and last of those three interview-only shows will be coming to you next Sunday, a week from now. And we are going to hear Lee Gerard Barlow, another Brit. And we will have an exciting talk about mesmerism, hypnotherapy, ancient Egypt, and some other topics. Looking forward to have you back as my audience then. But for now, I hand you over to Wendy Rule's soothing voice. Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.
sun.